This is Optimal Living Daily, episode 1507, on Great Teachers and the Remarkable Life, a Deliberate Practice Case Study, part two, by Cal Newport of calnewport.com, and I'm Justin Mollick. Happy Sunday, welcome to the old podcast, the OLD podcast, Optimal Living Daily, where I read to you like a big ongoing audiobook from many different authors, but today being a continuation from yesterday, so I'd recommend listening to yesterday's episode first. And hey, if you didn't know already, my friend Greg, he's a life coach, and he's answering your life questions on our brand new show, Optimal Living Advice. It'd be amazing if you could send in your life questions, it'd mean a lot. You can simply email one to advice at oldpodcast.com. Thank you in advance for doing that. And if your question is answered, I'll send you a book. Again, that's our new podcast, Optimal Living Advice, and you can send your life questions to advice at oldpodcast.com. But for now, let's get right to part two of Cal Newport's post and start optimizing your life. On Great Teachers and the Remarkable Life, a Deliberate Practice Case Study, part two, by Cal Newport of calnewport.com. What makes great teachers great? Strong teachers insist that effective teaching is neither mysterious nor magical, says Ripley. Quote, it is neither a function of dynamic personality nor dramatic performance, end quote. Instead, Teach for America has identified the following traits as the most important for high-performing teachers, such as Taylor. Number one, they set big goals for their students and are perpetually looking for ways to improve their effectiveness. In the Atlantic article, Teach for America's in-house professor, Steve Farr, noted that when he sets up visits with superstar teachers, they often say something like, you're welcome to come, but I have to warn you, I'm in the middle of just blowing up my classroom structure because I think it's not working as well as it could. Number two, they're obsessed about focusing every minute of classroom time towards student learning. Number three, they plan exhaustively and purposefully working backward from the desired outcome. Number four, they work relentlessly, refusing to surrender. And number five, they keep students and their families involved in the process. An expert in the article summarized the findings, quote, at the end of the day, it's the mindset that teachers need, a kind of relentless approach to the problem, end quote. The first four traits should sound familiar, setting big goals, working backwards from results to process, perpetually trying to improve, relentless focus. These sound a lot like the traits of deliberate practice. Indeed, when selecting teachers for their program, Teach for America's complex recruiting model identifies graduates who show evidence of having mastered this skill. Two effective predictors of a recruit's classroom success, for example, are improving a GPA from low to high and demonstrating meaningful leadership achievement. That is, improving a 2.0 to a 4.0 is more important than maintaining a 4.0, and doubling a club's membership is more important than simply being elected president. Teach for America want signs that you can take a difficult goal and then find a way to make it happen. A different kind of deliberate practice. A recent article in the Wall Street Journal estimated that it takes around 500,000 hours of deliberate practice for an NFL team to make it through a season. To put that in perspective, that's about 32 hours of hard work for each foot the ball moves down the field. This effort, of course, is carefully controlled and coached. For example, the article quotes the Colts' defensive end, Kunta Dawson, talking about the intense training needed to make split-second decisions based on subtle positioning of the head or foot of the opposing lineman. I thought college was a grind, but this is a job, said Dawson. When we think about deliberate practice, we tend to think about examples like Dawson or chess grandmasters or piano virtuosos being painstakingly coached through a difficult but well-established path to mastery. The examples of this process playing out in classrooms, however, have a different feel. 
William Taylor doesn't have a coach or decades of well-established training methodology to draw on. His approach is more freeform. He started with a clear goal when he presented a concept he wanted every student to understand it and then became obsessed with its achievement. His mental math exercise, his random selection of students to do problems at the board, the exit slips he collected at the end of the period, these activities evolved from a drive to constantly assess his class's comprehension. Over time, the extraneous was excised from his classroom schedule. He developed hand signals for the students to use to indicate a need for the bathroom, a way to eliminate the wasted time and distraction of calling on them. He exhaustively plans his lessons and then ruthlessly culls or modifies any piece that isn't effective. I found that the kids were not hard. It was explaining the information to them that was hard, Taylor recalls about his first year. He kept working until he cracked that hard puzzle. Freestyle deliberate practice. Here are the main components of Taylor's approach to deliberate practice. Number one, build an obsession with a clear goal. Number two, work backwards from the goal to plan your attack. Number three, expend hard focus toward this goal every day. And number four, ruthlessly evaluate and modify your approach to remove what doesn't work and improve what does. Let's call this approach freestyle deliberate practice to differentiate it from the more structured strain written about in the research literature. Here's my argument. For most fields, freestyle deliberate practice is the key to building a rare and valuable skill. Most people fall short of this standard, even those who are highly motivated to get better. From my experience, two obstacles trap people at an acceptable plateau of performance. First, we're uncomfortable blowing up our assumptions and ruthlessly evaluating our approach. It's much easier to choose a plan that feels right and then follow it blindly. Second, exhaustive focus on a daily basis is hard. It's not necessarily hard to do, we're only talking a couple hours out of the day, but in an age of constant electronic distraction, many have lost their ability for hard focus. Freestyle deliberate practice is not a clearly structured system that you can plug into your schedule and follow mechanically toward results. It's demanding and personal, touching upon the deepest levels of your character. It requires you to get down in the sweaty trenches of effort and attack short-term projects with an almost animalistic passion. You'll cry, good is not good enough. If I can't make this so excellent you'll weep, then it's not worth even trying. Fortunately, this process also feels great not the weak squirt of dopamine from an interesting Twitter exchange type of pleasure, but the deep down, in your bones, capital Q, Persigesque appreciation of quality experienced by master craftsmen throughout history. I'll end with a simple question. If you're interested in building a remarkable life, be it as a student or industry veteran, what would it mean to integrate freestyle deliberate practice into your life? This is a question I'll certainly be thinking and writing about in the weeks to follow. You just listened to part two of the post titled On Great Teachers and the Remarkable Life, a Deliberate Practice Case Study by Cal Newport of calnewport.com. And thank you to Cal. His research and articles are always fascinating. One of his books was mentioned by David Kane the other day. It's a super popular one called Deep Work. So if you like this article, you might wanna check that out. Again, that's the book Deep Work. But that'll do it for today and this weekend. Have a great rest of your weekend if you're listening in real time. And I'll be back tomorrow. So I'll see you there where your optimal life awaits.